What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Once again, a small disclaimer. This episode contains descriptions of human remains and the process of mummification. Please use discretion when listening to this story. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 152, An Unexpected Burial. King Tutankhamun has died, and his followers must lay him to rest. His burial and his tomb preserve aspects of these events, and from art and treasures, we can explore that story. This episode is dedicated to Sarah, a long-time listener of the podcast. Unfortunately, Sarah contracted the virus that has been raging across the world, so I dedicate this episode to her recovery. Fortunately, Sarah is doing well. It seems that Sakmet has blessed her, and the lioness does not rage in her household, which is great to hear. I have not touched on this subject in the show, as I generally wish to provide an oasis away from daily life. However, it is important to say, please take the necessary steps to protect yourself and those around you. Wear masks, get the vaccines, and treat your community with the care and respect necessary for our societies. In ancient Egypt, preventable diseases killed many before their time and their medical science was insufficient to overcome those challenges. Today, we have other opportunities. Let's do our best to make that suffering a thing of the past. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the tale. The year was 1334 BCE, approximately. The two lands, southern and northern Egypt, were in a moment of transition. The pharaoh, Tutankhamun, was dead. The living Horus was now a corpse, and his soul, or Ba, was flying towards the horizon. On earth, the living had to reckon with the death of their king. Tutankhamun's advisors, his officials, and his servants had to organize a funeral. Tutankhamun probably died in early January. His funeral took place in late March or April. And we know that because flowers preserved in the tomb give reference points. Studying the bouquets and wreaths, scholars can identify the period when this funeral occurred. It seems to be a late March or April event. So that gives us a rough timeline for King Tutankhamun's burial. We can then work backwards and suggest that he died around early January. That is speculative. Historians work on the assumption that a funeral 
happened two or three months after the death itself. Those dates are rough guesses based on other historical records, but you get the idea. If the funeral happened in April, then it is a reasonable guess that Tutankhamun died 60 to 90 days earlier. That gives us January for the rough date of his passing. Now that Tutankhamun was dead, the priests would need to preserve his body. They would need to purify, desiccate, and wrap the corpse. They would need to anoint it, decorate it with amulets, and seal it in coffins. Studying Tutankhamun's mummy, scholars can reconstruct the methods of embalming. How did the priests prepare and preserve the body? Looking at his corpse and working backwards, we can get some ideas. The mummification would take place in a temple. The priests would lay the body on a table and begin their process. First, they would shave Tutankhamun. They removed all of the hair and any lice or insects to purify his corpse. Then, they rubbed the body with oils and unguents, cleansing the limbs and removing impurities. After those initial preparations, the more gruesome work would begin. Now, it was time to remove the organs and preserve the body. The priests may have started with the brain. Removing Tutankhamun's brain was quite simple. The priests brought a chisel of sorts to his nose. They tapped that chisel sharply, breaking the barrier between the nostrils and the brain cavity. Then they inserted a narrow rod, possibly heated up. Carefully, the priests swirled this rod around inside the head. They scrambled the brain, turning it into a mushy liquid. Then, they lifted the body up vertically so that the remains could dribble out through the nose. In a few minutes, maybe an hour, the brain cavity would mostly empty out. Once the brain had dribbled out, the embalmers lay Tutankhamun down once again. They placed him at the end of a bed so that his head would hang off the side. Then, they poured liquids down into his brain cavity. Resins from trees pooled in the base of Tutankhamun's skull. Curiously, it seems that the embalmers did this twice. The king has two layers of resin, one at the top of his brain cavity and one at the back, so they must have poured these liquids in on two separate occasions. Why they did that is unclear, but Tutankhamun does have a slightly unusual mummification. With the brain removed, it was time to prepare the torso. First, the physicians made a cut in the abdomen, just near the navel or belly button. They drew the knife sideways on a diagonal. The cut on Tutankhamun's mummy runs from the left of his belly button to the top of his hip. It was a short incision, but that would do. From here, the priests could remove the organs. The embalmer put their hand into the incision. Then, they slowly extracted the pharaoh's viscera. The intestines, the liver, the stomach, and the lungs. All of these came out one after another. The priests buried these organs in salts and sands. They wrapped them in linen, and they placed them in special containers. The canopic jars of Tutankhamun went into his tomb. We will see those again when I tell the story of the excavation. The physicians removed each organ one by one. Intestines, stomach, liver, and lungs all came out through the small hole in the side. 
You can imagine the smell and the mass of material that had to be removed. But eventually the job was done. The torso was empty. A wet, hollow space in the king's body. That was a problem. Left alone, the cavity would collapse and the torso would lose its shape. As a result, priests now refilled the body with new material. They washed the cavity out and anointed it with oils. Then they stuffed linen and sand into the torso. They packed the body up with dry material to help it stay in shape. You will find many mummies have this stuffing shoved into the torso. The people who mummified Tutankhamun made a few mistakes. For one thing, they overstuffed his body. The right-hand side of Tutankhamun's abdomen has a bulge. It protrudes noticeably with extra stuffing. How come? Well, it seems the embalmers were a bit overenthusiastic with the packing material. As they shoved it in from the left-hand side, they accidentally put too much into the cavity. So the king's abdomen bulges slightly on the right. Whoever did that must have felt a bit silly. The second problem is the heart. Traditionally, embalmers would leave a heart inside the body. This was a religious decision. For the ancients, the heart was the centre of consciousness, your true self, if you will. So it should stay with the body whenever possible. However, Tutankhamun does not have his heart. X-rays and CT scans suggest that the organ is missing. Why? There are a couple explanations. The simplest answer is accident. Tutankhamun is not the only mummy that is lacking its heart. Other bodies, even royal ones, have the same problem. This might have been a mistake by the embalmer. Mummification was not an exact science. The physicians were doing things by hand. They worked in poor lighting, and they removed each organ through a small hole in the abdomen. So they couldn't see what they were doing, necessarily. And since the embalmer had to remove the lungs right next to the heart, it was probably easy to make a mistake. Rummaging around with their knives, they might have cut the wrong organ out. If the heart came away accidentally, the embalmers might replace it with an amulet, but not always. In many cases, the heart is simply gone. So perhaps the embalmers made a mistake with the king. That could be a simple explanation. Another reason could be injury. If Tutankhamun died violently, then his heart may have been damaged. Perhaps, in those circumstances, the embalmers chose to remove the heart and replace it with an amulet. That is completely speculative. We do not know how Tutankhamun died, exactly. But it is possible. If he died violently to a spear, arrow, or animal attack, his chest and heart might have been damaged. Unfortunately, there is no evidence for this today. The body is poorly preserved, making it hard to determine the cause of death. So that injury idea is just a hypothesis. Finally, there are modern explanations. First, it is possible that Tutankhamun's heart disappeared in the excavation. When Howard Carter and his team uncovered the body, Tutankhamun was already in poor condition. The ancients had covered the mummy with resins and oils, and when they did, they accidentally glued Tutankhamun into his coffin. During the excavation, Carter and his colleagues had to be quite rough with the mummy to get it out. Unfortunately, they caused a bit of damage in the process. So it's possible the heart was there originally, but was somehow lost or damaged in the excavation. That is an unfortunate reality. 
Carter and his team did not preserve the body perfectly. Alternatively, the heart may have been stolen. You see, after its discovery, Tutankhamun lay in his tomb for decades. But the king was not totally secure. At some point, around the 1940s, somebody robbed the mummy. Certain jewellery, like a golden crown, went missing, and the king's body suffered further damage. The robbers could have accidentally destroyed some of the remains. Again, that is uncertain, but it's possible. With that in mind, the mystery of Tutankhamun's heart has a few explanations. Which one is correct? Unknown. But the king's heart is lost, and we do not know why. So the mummy of Tutankhamun has a few unusual features. The skull has two layers of resin, suggesting the embalmers did this twice. Why? Unclear. The abdomen is overstuffed, and the king's heart is missing. Again, the reasons for this are unknown. Scholars can make hypotheses, but for now, we simply do not know. We should keep that in mind when thinking about this body. Anyway. The priests removed the organs, one at a time. When that was done, they could start preserving Tutankhamun's corpse. The embalmers lay Tutankhamun in a bath of salt and sand. Tutankhamun's body would lie drying in the salt for approximately two months. Every so often, the embalmers would remove the salts and replace them to ensure maximum dehydration. Basically, the idea was to get all the moisture out to prevent decomposition. Finally, after many weeks, the body was preserved. Now, the priests could wrap and adorn Tutankhamun. They started with some decorations. The king's fingers and toes would receive special ornaments. On each digit, the king had a sheath. These were made of gold and finely carved to resemble the actual features. For example, the sheaths on his fingers are delicately carved, and they even have the fingernails, the cuticle, and the nail bed. The toes are equally detailed. So Tutankhamun had the best quality ornaments. His limbs, his digits, were sheathed in gold. Next, priests would wrap the king in fine-quality linen. They laid strips of fabric against the skin, winding it round and around the limbs. They placed amulets between each layer, holding them close to the body with every new wrapping. Over and over, they wound these bandages around the mummy. The embalmers were meticulous. They even placed linen within the body to preserve the shape of the torso. They wrapped every toe, every finger, individually. It was slow, but essential. Every amulet, every layer of wrapping, added another protection for King Tutankhamun's body. During this process, the priests also adorned the body with necklaces and tools. There were dozens of these, way too many to discuss. But long story short, every layer of linen contained another set of expensive, beautiful trinkets. By the end, Tutankhamun's mummy must have weighed a lot more than he did in his life. Gold and jewels appeared on every part of this body. The king's mummy was a treasure trove in itself. Hour after hour, the priests laboured at this task. Then, finally, it was done. The mummy was fully enclosed in linen, and the last elements could go in place. To complete the embalming, 
the priests wrapped Tutankhamun's body in golden bands. Long strips of metal adorned with hieroglyphs went around his legs, waist, and arms. On his chest, they placed a pair of golden hands, which clutched the royal scepters, the crook and the flail. Over his heart, they placed a scarab beetle made of black resin. The scarab was a symbol of divinity and the sun god, Ra. So over his heart, the king had an emblem of the creator deity. A good way to protect your soul. All of these ornaments went onto the mummy in various layers. Eventually, the king's body was adorned with pure white bandages and a wealth of golden symbols. Looking at the mummy in its final stage of preparation must have been impressive. Of course, there was one more item. You know the one. Over the head and shoulders, the priests laid a stunning golden mask. Tutankhamun's golden face with a beard of kingship nestled within a yellow and blue headdress. On his brow, a cobra and a vulture guarded the visage. That mask would be the final thing anyone saw of young Tutankhamun's face. Today, this item is legendary, one of the most famous in Egyptian history. I'll come back to the mask in future, when we discuss the archaeological excavations. There are many aspects of its manufacture and design which are fascinating, so we will talk about that another time. For now, let's imagine the golden mask glittering in the candlelight, gazing into eternity. The mummification was complete. The embalming process was nearly done. Now, the priests could ready Tutankhamun for his funeral. From beginning to end, mummification took a long time. The king's body would have laid in the temple for more than two months. As it did, the royal workshops would hurry to prepare treasures and items for Tutankhamun's burial. Elsewhere, artisans would continue working on his tomb, and the pharaoh's successor, the new king of Egypt, would supervise the preparations. I will tell those stories another time. For now, the funeral is ready to begin. After the break, Tutankhamun's final journey gets underway. We explore the ceremonies, the grand procession that carried the king from the earthly realm to the next. The funeral and the burial of Tutankhamun are surprisingly well recorded. Looking at his tomb and some lesser-known objects, we can describe the last day of his time on Earth. That is Chapter 2, after the break. See you in a moment. Chapter 2. King Tutankhamun died, and priests embalmed his corpse. For weeks, months, the physicians and specialists did their work. Between January and April, roughly, they prepared the mummy of the king. Eventually, all of that was done. Now, it was time to bury Tutankhamun in his tomb. The king's funeral was ready to begin. The funeral probably started at Tutankhamun's mortuary temple. This was a special complex built by the king as a monument to his memory. Most rulers throughout history built one of these temples. 
Presumably, Tutankhamun did the same. Unfortunately, the king's monument is lost. Archaeologists have not positively identified the memorial temple for King Tutankhamun. There are a couple of candidates in the western part of Luxor, or Thebes, and these might have been his temple. But for now, nothing is conclusive. Even if we cannot find the temple, we can imagine it. Tutankhamun's monument probably had a large gateway, with two pylons on either side. It would have a series of courtyards with columns and decorations. It would have storage facilities for ceremonial objects. And it might have had trees, like an orchard. Perhaps a pool or a lake in front of the entrance. This is speculative, based on other monuments. But if you imagine a temple, small but lavish, you can get the basic idea. Wherever this temple was, it would be the starting location for King Tutankhamun's funeral. It was here, on a cool day in spring, that the ceremonies began. As I said, Tutankhamun's burial probably happened around April. This is based on the flowers that we find in his tomb, which presumably were picked and readied around this time. The flowers seem to be late winter or early spring, so that gives us a rough date for the event. Royal funerals must have been a lavish affair. Dozens, even hundreds of individuals, would gather to farewell the king of southern and northern Egypt. High-ranking officials and courtiers would gather in their finest clothing. Priests and priestesses would fill the air with incense, singing, and prayer. Servants would clear the path as processions made their way. And countless mourners would follow, wailing their grief at the loss of the king. As you can imagine, this must have been a spectacle. Officially, a royal funeral involved many different rituals, ceremonies, and events. I have described these previously in episode 56. For a brief recap, a royal burial included three essential phases. First, a parade or procession from the mortuary temple to the royal tomb. Then, the sacred rituals called the opening of the mouth, which enabled the mummy to breathe and live in the next world. Finally, placing the mummy and its treasures within the tomb sealing that tomb, and celebrating the memory. That is the essential structure of a royal funeral. If you would like the deep dive with all of the details, you can find that in episode 56. Today, I want to focus on the events specific to King Tutankhamun. From his tomb, we get scenes and objects related to his funeral. First, the procession. Tutankhamun's last journey appears on the walls of his tomb, In the burial chamber, on the east wall, a gorgeous painting shows the king's mummy as it went from the temple to the tomb. The painting is simple. It shows a few individuals and the body itself. So the artist has reduced it down to the essentials. In reality, we can probably imagine a vast, noisy congregation traveling the roads toward the Valley of the Kings. An appropriate send-off for a mighty pharaoh. We see Tutankhamun's mummy lying on a sled. The body rests atop a couch beneath a shrine, and that shrine stands atop a sled carved like a boat. So the king's mummy travelled as if it were on the river, a symbolic sailing towards the west. The boat sled was placed atop another, more generic sled. That one rested on the ground, and this was the means by which the mourners pulled the king. 
they would drag the sledge with the boat and the mummy from the great temple to the Valley of the Kings. As they did so, the funeral procession began. The painting in his tomb shows the people who dragged King Tutankhamun's sled. According to this image, the pharaoh's body was pulled by twelve individuals. A group of men, walking in a line, go before the sled. They are well-dressed, in robes of pure white. On their heads, the men wear ribbons or fillets of linen. The white cloth ties around their brow and hangs down the neck. The outfits seem to be ritual clothing, pure and clean for the funeral. Above the scene, we get a basic description of the event. Hieroglyphs record a speech by the officials. As they walk, they utter a ritual proclamation in honour of the king. The hieroglyphs say, quote, Words of the companions and great ones who are in the king's house, or entourage. They are hauling the Osiris, the king, lord of the two lands, neb Keperura, to the west. While marching, they speak in one voice, saying, neb Keperura, come in peace, O God who protects the land. End quote. So members of the royal entourage, the great ones of the palace, drag Tutankhamun's mummy. And as they go, they utter praises for the king. Technically, these men are anonymous. Their names do not appear, and they all look identical. But we can guess a couple of individuals. Firstly, two of them have distinct costumes. Near the back of the procession, a pair of men with shaved heads walk side by side. They wear special robes, different from the others. These men are probably the chatti, the two prime ministers or viziers of the kingdom. Officially, the Chatti of southern and northern Egypt were the leaders of the royal administration. Generally speaking, the Chatti were the most influential and prominent members of a government. But in the reign of Tutankhamun, that was not the case. As we saw recently, other men held a lot more prominence in this administration. And one of these people might appear in the parade. Just behind the two bald individuals, the Chatti, there is another man. This chap is at the very rear of the group, so he is closest to the mummy. That indicates his status. The man's proximity to the king suggests that he is the most influential, the most prominent person in this group. Who is he? Well, as I said, the men are technically anonymous. There are no names. But there is a good chance that this person is Horemheb, the deputy of the king, the leader of Tutankhamun's government. Horemheb was overall the most prominent and influential member of Tutankhamun's administration, so he is probably the best candidate to lead this parade. We can't be sure, but I think it is a good bet that this man is Horemheb. The king's high officials marched in procession, drawing his mummy on a couch and a sled. Other treasures, like the coffins, shrines, and trinkets, followed. And in the growing light of the day, the grand procession made its way west. They marched along paths, rocky and dusty. They passed between cliffs, which loomed overhead. And soon, the procession left the open skies and cool breezes of the Nile Valley. The river vanished behind the cliffs. Now, the funeral moved into another world. King Tutankhamun would rest in the Valley of the Kings, a.k.a. the Biban al-Muluk, 
There, in hidden chambers, the king's mummy would lie in secret splendor. The funeral procession, winding its way between the cliffs, was heading for that place. Soon, the crowd gathered before the tomb. The next phase is reasonably clear. Thanks to painted images and archaeological finds, we have a good idea how the burial of Tutankhamun proceeded. Having completed their funeral parade, religious officials would anoint the mummy of the king. They would prepare Tutankhamun for the next world, helping his body achieve immortality. Once again, we find a painting of this event in his tomb. On the north wall of the burial chamber, directly ahead when you enter the room, we see the mummy of Tutankhamun. The king appears as a white-shrouded body. He stands upright, ready for ceremonies. And the costume of the mummy is distinctive. Tutankhamun appears as the god Osiris, or Usir. He wears a white shroud around him. On his head, there is a tall white crown with green feathers. The king, or the mummy, holds scepters, the crook and flail, in each hand. In short, he appears as Osiris, the king of the dead, the lord of the next world. This is symbolic. In life, the pharaoh Tutankhamun had been the living Horus. Now, he ascended to the next phase of existence. So this picture shows a moment of transition, the rituals that would carry Tutankhamun from our world to the west. The mummy stands tall and proud, but he is not alone. In front of Tutankhamun, another man appears. This chap wears a white kilt, a leopard skin around his chest, and he carries a scepter. The man is a priest, the Sem priest, and he holds up a strange bent tool. This item is an adze, and the priest uses it to open the eyes, nose, and mouth of the king. In other words, we find Tutankhamun's mummy receiving the famous ritual called opening the mouth. The opening of the mouth is standard. We see it in many tombs. In this ceremony, a priest would metaphorically part the lips of the mummy. He would recite prayers or commands to open the nostrils, eyes, and ears. By doing this, the priest ensured that a body could use those faculties in the next world. Once the ritual was done, the soul could breathe, speak, and see in eternity. The opening of the mouth was an essential ritual. It allowed the dead to live, quote-unquote, once more. As I said, the scene is 100% traditional, standard stuff. But one aspect is curious. You see, the man doing the ritual dresses like a priest, but on his head, he also wears a crown. This priest is actually a king, Tutankhamun's successor as pharaoh. He performs the rituals as a son should do for the father, but Tutankhamun did not have a son. So who is this new pharaoh? Well, that is a story for another day. For now, let us focus on the ritual. The new king performed the opening of the mouth for Tutankhamun. In this image, we see two generations, two forms of royalty. One, Tutankhamun, appears as the Osiris, the eternal ruler. The other man, his heir, appears as the new Horus. Again, it is the moment of transition. Power shifts from one king to the next. Tutankhamun moves from one world to another. 
This painting gives an image of the royal mummy making its transformation. Now, let's see how the real body went into the tomb. Out in the Valley of the Kings, the mourners lifted the mummy of Tutankhamun from its sled. They carried it down the stairs, along a corridor, into a chamber, and then they turned right towards the sacred hall. Within the burial chamber, the royal mummy would go into its coffins, and into a sarcophagus. A stone chest waited for the mummy. This was a beautiful item, a rectangular box carved from red quartzite. It was polished smooth, decorated with hieroglyphs, and at each corner, the figure of a goddess wrapped wings around the box. Tutankhamun's sarcophagus is delicately carved, a fine example of royal sculpture and design. But of course, the sarcophagus was not the only container. As they carried him to the chest, the mourners also placed Tutankhamun within a series of coffins. The king would rest within three elaborate caskets, made of wood, gold, glass, and gems. These coffins were incredibly expensive. Over the coffins, the priests laid a shroud, and on the outer coffin, one last ornament went in place. On the forehead, somebody placed a small wreath. It was made of olive leaves and blue flowers attached to a strip of papyrus. This wreath was delicate and evocative. It conjured up a touching image. When Howard Carter described the coffin, he imagined that this wreath was laid by Tutankhamun's widow, Queen Ankesen Amun. Carter said, quote, Upon the forehead of this outer coffin were two emblems, the cobra and the vulture. But perhaps the most touching was the tiny wreath of flowers around these symbols. It pleased us to think that this was the last farewell offering of the widowed girl queen to her husband, the youthful representative of the two kingdoms. End quote. At the risk of puncturing a bubble, there is no evidence who put the wreath in place. Maybe it was Ankes and Amun laying down a final memento for her king. Or maybe it was a priest, finishing their work and adorning the casket. Either way, the flowers were an evocative touch. Amidst all the gold, the treasure, and the glory, this tiny wreath seemed the most human of all. Some of you may be wanting more detail on the coffins, the sarcophagus, and the mummy mask. Don't worry, that will come in the future. The burial equipment and the lavish treasures are a massive topic, enough for a full episode on their own. In my early drafts for this chapter, I tried to discuss them here and now, but very quickly, it became an information overload. So do not worry, the full details of the sarcophagus, coffins, mummy mask, and treasures will come in due course. For now, let's keep our eye on the funeral and its events. The priests laid the mummy and the coffins into the chest. Then they sealed the lid of the sarcophagus. They lifted a stone slab on top of the rectangular box. Apparently, the porters had some trouble with the lid. The top of the sarcophagus is cracked, and it may have broken accidentally during the funeral. The royal masons repaired the lid quickly, patching it with mortar or cement. Then they fitted it in place, and used the same type of cement to seal the lid onto the base of the sarcophagus. 
So we have a clear idea that while they were putting the lid in place, there was a small accident. Nevertheless, they fixed it and carried on. With that, Tutankhamun's mummy was encased in three coffins and a stone sarcophagus. It was protected. The burial was almost done. Now, the mourners began to finish the tomb itself. Within the burial chamber, they erected a series of shrines. Wood and gold panels adorned with art and hieroglyphs would surround the sarcophagus and the mummy. There were four of these shrines in different styles, and their texts recorded images and stories of the gods. So around the king's body, there were multiple layers of protection. Tutankhamun would rest as secure as possible in his chamber. Once the shrines were in place, the tomb was almost done. Masons erected a wall between the burial chamber and the outer halls. Then, painters decorated the walls of the burial chamber, including the newly completed partition. When they were done, priests added symbolic objects to certain locations. They purified the air, and then they sealed the chamber for good. At that moment, the burial hall disappeared from human sight. Tutankhamun vanished behind gold, wood, and brick, hopefully for eternity. The final phase was the stocking or provisioning of the tomb. Porters now carried treasures, furniture, and miscellaneous objects into the monument. They filled the outer chambers with all sorts of items. Then, when that was done, the last step began. To seal Tutankhamun's burial, masons erected a door. It was made of bricks that filled the entranceway and closed the tomb for good. When the bricks were in place, the artisans smeared a thick layer of plaster on top. This covered the surface in a rather distinctive manner. Looking at the old photos from the initial discovery, you can still see the smears, the brush strokes where masons added the plaster. There were fingerprints and clear patterns of their movements impressed on the wall. These little features, in my opinion, are wonderful. You could almost reach out and touch the spot where ancient fingers pressed. When the door was finished, officials could formally seal the tomb. High-ranking administrators came forth, clutching wooden stamps. These stamps were symbols of their office. Many of them received these items as a mark of their authority. The stamps were flat on one side and adorned with hieroglyphs and images. The officials pressed these stamps into the wet plaster. As they pulled away, the stamps left distinctive impressions, seals to mark the final closing. Looking at the seals, Howard Carter identified eight distinctive types. Seven were original from the first burial and closure. The other set came later, when officials inspected and resealed the tomb following a couple of robberies. Basically, by looking at the plaster and the style of these seals, archaeologists could confirm aspects of the history. So, stamps may not seem important, but they do tell stories. As I said, there are different types of these seals. One of the most common shows a canine, perhaps Anubis, at the top. The god lies with his tail hanging down the side. Beneath the canine, three rows of prisoners appear together. There are nine of these in total. Each man kneels, with his arms tied behind his back. This canine plus nine captives is a famous emblem. It seems to be the official seal of the royal necropolis. 
Chances are the canine seal came from a specific royal official. In episode 149, we met a man named Maya, a high-ranking administrator. One of Maya's titles was Overseer of Works in the Place of Eternity. In other words, he was in charge of constructing the king's tomb. So Maya had authority over the Valley of the Kings, and Tutankhamun's monument specifically. With that in mind, I would not be surprised if the canine seal came from him. It is possible that those impressions were the result of Maya's work. If this is accurate, perhaps we could imagine Maya, the high official, overseeing the construction. As the sun rose higher and the day grew warmer, the overseer of the treasury might have sweated in his fine white robes. The ribbon or fillet around his forehead may have grown damp, and dust kicked up by the workers filled the tomb and corridors. Eventually, the bricks were in place, the plaster was wet, and Maya could do his job. Stepping forth, one of Tutankhamun's most prominent servants sealed the doors of the tomb. Other men, Maya's colleagues, did the same. Eventually, seven different stamps adorned the brick and plaster. So the masons bricked up one door, and the officials put their seals on the plaster. Then, at the other end of the corridor, the masons added a second door. This outer door stood at the base of the staircase, which led to the tomb itself. Again, this door was bricked up and covered with plaster. The royal officials, overseeing the process, stamped this one as well. Finally, the last element. Workers buried the staircase and the doorway with sand and rubble. They hauled baskets of earth to the spot, then poured their contents into the hole. One basket at a time, the staircase filled with material. The doorway slowly vanished, and then the tomb was buried. With that, the monument was closed for good. From now on, Tutankhamun would rest in security. The Osiris, king of the west, would lie entombed behind brick, rock, and gold. The king was gone, his burial was complete. Tutankhamun's reign had officially ended. On a cool day in April, around 1334 BCE, King Tutankhamun's funeral occurred. Following his mummification, the king's body travelled from a temple to his hidden tomb. The procession was grand, as high officials dragged the coffins and the mummy to the secret chambers. Rituals anointed the body, transforming Tutankhamun into an Osiris. Over the course of hours, the late king of Egypt went to his rest. Ideally, the mummy of Tutankhamun would now lie undisturbed for eternity, but fate and circumstance had other ideas. Over the next few years, Tutankhamun would be disturbed a couple of times, but the monument overall endured. And eventually, this tomb would reappear in a stunning archaeological discovery. Those tales, those events, are the next chapters of our story. We are now beginning a mini-series of episodes covering the tomb of Tutankhamun. You probably know the gist of the story, but there are many lesser-known aspects and questions 
so the tomb of Tutankhamun is worth a bit of attention. I hope you enjoy the series. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. My special thanks to the musicians who shared their work with me. Artists like Michael Levy, Ancient Lyric, and Keith Zizzer have generously given permission to use their songs on the show. Please support them. Follow the links in the episode description to find their work. Also, I must offer glory to the priests. Andrew, Evan, Jason, Kendra, Kyla, Linda, Terry, and TJ signed up to support the show as top-tier patrons. If I could build a temple to give every one of them a job, I would. For now, let this paltry offering pay some of my debt. And to everyone that has supported the show with donations and pledges, thank you from the bottom of my heart. With your kindness, I can afford delicious coffee, which opens my eyes and mouth more effectively than any ritual. And I may not lie in golden coffins, but I can afford a nice warm bed. So, my thanks. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. I hope you have enjoyed this story. May Anubis, guardian of the place of eternity, protect you and your family. May you enjoy an eternity of offerings, and a legacy to last the ages. That's all from me. Take care, look after your community, and be safe. I will see you soon. Oh, and stick around after the music for an epilogue in which I tell a story of Tutankhamun's other tomb, a small monument discovered 15 years earlier that held traces of the king's last journey. That is, after the music. Howdy folks! Welcome to an epilogue, a small extra chapter related to these events. Our knowledge of Tutankhamun's funeral comes mostly from his tomb. Discovered in 1922, the king's burial is a famous monument, and a legendary moment in archaeological history. However, when it comes to the funeral of Tutankhamun, our knowledge actually goes back a bit further. Fifteen years before Howard Carter uncovered the tomb, a small discovery revealed part of Tutankhamun's story. This discovery took place in the Valley of the Kings, in late 1907. Back then, an archaeologist named Edward Ayrton was digging in the valley on behalf of his employer, Theodore M. Davis. We have met both men before in earlier episodes. Long story short, Davis was a wealthy businessman who fancied himself an archaeologist. Ayrton, meanwhile, was a genuine excavator, and he did most of the work in this discovery. In late 1907, Ayrton was leading a dig. Egyptian workers were excavating in the valley under his supervision. In the course of their digging, the team uncovered a pit, a hole in the ground created by the ancients. The hole was square and filled with mud, but as they cleared, the team uncovered some curious objects. Large jugs, or pots, emerged from the soil. They were covered and sealed, and when the excavators opened them, they found a strange sight. The pots were full of linen, bags of salt, small cups, broken dishes, and flowers. There were also bones, the remains of animals. These included ducks, 
geese, cows and sheep, or possibly goat. There were bits of rope with mud and the impression of seals, and there was a variety of small, fragmentary material. Putting it all together, the objects seemed to come from a tomb, but this pit did not have any mummies or any objects at all beyond these large, sealed jugs. So what had they discovered? As the find came to light, Edward Ayrton reported it to his boss, but Theodore Davis was not interested in these scraps. In fact, he didn't seem to care at all. A few years later, he donated the entire discovery to New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. How did he do that? Well, Davis worked in the period when excavators would divide their finds with the Egyptian government. At the end of an excavation, antiquities inspectors would assess the discoveries and choose which ones Egypt wanted to keep. In this case, the head of the antiquities service, Gaston Maspero, agreed with Davis's request that they donate the items to the Met. So, the goods were packed up and shipped off to Gotham, where they entered the museum collection. For a while, these pots and their contents were small news. Nobody cared about them. But eventually, an Egyptologist named Herbert Winlock started looking more closely, and he realised that these items were probably connected with the funeral of King Tutankhamun. Around 1915, Winlock examined the goods, and began talking about the burial of the ruler. Along the way, he shared some of those insights with his friend, the archaeologist Howard Carter. Winlock's observations encouraged Carter in some of his excavation work. But I digress. Winlock studied these objects, noting the details and the context. He identified different animals from the bones, and he reconstructed the pottery. In the jugs, there were many fragments of dishes, They were in pieces, apparently smashed in antiquity. Well, Winlock and his associates put the dishes back together, and soon they reconstructed a marvellous group of objects. The pit had linen or cloth produced in the reign of Tutankhamun. Some of this linen had texts related to its manufacture. They recorded things like, Linen of year 8, very good quality, and Linen of year 6, of the good god Nebkeperura, beloved of men. The linen showed signs of use, and some pieces had been washed repeatedly. Apparently, some of the cloth had been washed so many times that the edges were starting to fray. So these items were well used before they went into the pit, and studying them, Winlock could identify aspects of ancient life. The scholar also noted cups used in these ancient events. They had texts referencing incense and grapes so perhaps the cups held offerings of fruit and resins. Again, another trace of the ancient behaviour. Finally, the animal bones were distinct. Winlock determined that 13 birds, including 9 ducks and 4 geese, were present. The surviving bones suggested that the people who ate this meat had favoured the wings and breasts of the bird, no drumsticks for the ancient Egyptians. Also, the cow bones came from a shoulder, and they showed cuts where someone had, quote, hacked with some sort of heavy cleaver, end quote. These details may sound trivial, but they give us insights to ancient activity. Apparently, the Egyptians preparing these goods preferred breast and wings from the birds, and the butchers were not gentle when cutting up their meat. Are they small details? Sure. But are they cool? Absolutely. Anyway, 
Wenlock studied the collection, and he put together some interesting conclusions. Eventually, he decided that the jugs and their contents probably related to the funeral of King Tutankhamun. In his view, the linen and salt probably came from Tutankhamun's mummification. Then, the dishes, animal bones, and other items may have come from a feast. Working from this basis, Winlock reconstructed a funerary banquet where high officials or priests honoured the dead king. He thought they may have gathered outside Tutankhamun's tomb, and as the king was buried with his treasure, these high officials held a banquet in honour of the ruler. In Winlock's hypothesis, the various items may have come from Tutankhamun's mummification, like the linen and the natron, and the food may have come from a banquet at his funeral. And as for why they were buried? Well, Winlock wondered if it had something to do with a ritual purification. The priests who embalmed Tutankhamun may have wanted to cleanse themselves of the process, and the people eating the meal near his tomb may have wanted to wash away the impurities of a necropolis. That was just hypothetical, but it was an interesting idea. Recently, scholars have re-examined Winlock's conclusions. Some of his ideas are sound, but others might need to change. The big question is that funerary feast. Winlock imagined a banquet at the king's tomb. Well, nowadays, scholars have revised that one. Instead of a banquet, they connect these items with a ritual. During Tutankhamun's funeral, or his mummification, priests and officials may have given offerings to the king's memory. Rituals like these show up in other tombs, and we have images of mourners giving food or drink for the deceased. Notably, those rituals include a phase where the people smash their dishes and pots. After using them, the mourners hurl the plates to the ground, just like the ones found in the pit. As a result, scholars have updated Winlock's hypothesis. Now, the following story seems likely. First, the embalmers mummified Tutankhamun. When they were done, they buried the linen and the salt in the pots. Fairly simple, not too controversial. Secondly, as the mummification progressed, or after it was finished, mourners honoured the dead king. They set up tables, piled with offerings, including bread and meat. They offered these items to the deceased, nourishing the spirit of Tutankhamun in the next world. When they were done, the mourners smashed their plates and dishes. Then, they buried everything, pottery and food, in the jugs. Those jugs went into a pit in the Valley of the Kings, and the whole sequence was buried. So, scholars have updated the scenario slightly. The changes are small. Instead of a feast outside the tomb, we have offerings given in honour of the dead. These offerings may have taken place at Tutankhamun's memorial temple. Basically, the timing is slightly different, with the rituals occurring during the mummification, or just afterwards. Overall, the picture is still roughly the same, and you get the idea. But as time goes on, scholars re-examine old evidence. Sometimes, the story changes. In the end, we add another chapter to our knowledge, more detail about ancient lives. In 1907, archaeologist Edward Ayrton found a small pit in the Valley of the Kings. Inside, jugs held the remains of embalming material and foodstuffs. Apparently, these items related to the death, 
mummification and honouring of King Tutankhamun. However, the objects were unobtrusive, and it took time for scholars to recognise their significance. Ayrton and the Egyptian workers found the pit, but their boss, Theodore Davis, got the credit. Later, Davis declared that he had found the tomb of King Tutankhamun, and he published that opinion in 1912. Of course, we know he was wrong, but the businessman was always confident in himself. And Davis died in 1915, still believing he had found that tomb. Ironically, the small pit discovered in 1907 was just 100 metres away from the actual tomb of Tutankhamun. Davis had dug in the vicinity of that tomb a couple of times, and he came close to the monument of King Tutankhamun, but not close enough. Fifteen years later, another archaeologist would achieve that discovery and solve that question. But that is a story for another day.